I would like to thank Ken King, Brian Bird, Brad Sullivan. It happened. The Calgary Flames at about 8 a.m. Mountain Standard Time on May 3rd, 2016, announced that they had relieved head coach Bob Hartley of his duties as head coach. And Flames Nation, as a collective, blew its roof. Um, I'm Christian Rodas. This is the Shotdown in Flames Nation podcast. Uh, I'm joined alongside Ari Yanover and, and Ryan Pike. To discuss it, we'll be joined by Mike Fail a little later to talk about uh, just candidates and and moving forward to fill the position. But Bob Hartley got fired. I mean, we've been okay. I shouldn't sound so excited about this because the man did lose his job, and he's probably completely crushed about it. And that you know, the human element is really quite sad. But from a professional standpoint, oh yes, we have been on this horse for so long. And it finally happened. Um, I'll start with you, Ari. How do you feel about this, besides elated? Okay, well, that's not very took away my word. So, uh, I, like, pleasantly surprised, I guess. I figured, I was um, on the belief with um, a lot of people that they would probably stick around with him for the start of next season and give him a chance because he won the Jack Adams and he did so much in that one fluke season. I'm not really sure what else he did or how else defined from being a success but he had that much and I didn't want that because it's probably better to start the next season with a clean slate and apparently Brad Jeremy agreed so that was cool we've been banging the drum at Flames Nation to to relieve Hartley of his duties for a long long time and Ryan it's not because we hate him right it's not uh, there's a lot of people that comment oh how could you guys hate hate uh, Bob Hartley. Why do you hate Bob Hartley? He's such a great person in front of the media. He's, he's funny and he's, he's developed Johnny Goodrow, but it's a, it's a lot more deep an issue than that, isn't it? Uh, I think that's fair. I mean, there's plenty of people who I I like as people who are, you know, not very good at their jobs. And, you know, I think the the main thing is if you think Bob Hartley is a good person and you like the things that he does off the ice, but you don't like his performance, it's unfair to keep him in a position where he's not going to perform well and in a position where the team's not going to perform well in front of them. So, if anything, you know, this is the kind of situation where, you know, going off what Ari was saying, just the, the idea was, I think, I thought we were exiting a window of time where they could gas him. I thought if they didn't pull the trigger by basically now-ish, uh, you know, at the very end of uh, the evaluation process for the past season, that they'd probably give him until next season just because there didn't seem to be an obvious next person or an obvious uh, internal option. And, you know, if you get really past this point, then you really have to gas a whole coaching staff and, you know, restaff up mid-season. And uh, I, I honestly was kind of impressed by the fact that they had the courage to gas him and, you know, put Bob in a situation where he can perform well and put the team in a situation where they can perform well. So I'm pleasantly surprised. Yeah, Bratcher living, I don't know, he, he waited a week and he said he evaluated, but... Do you really think he evaluated Ari, or do you think that that this was a, a predisposition and and uh, a true living just kind of gave Hartley a week out of respect to say that yeah he he mulled I it over? I think he actually evaluated because I mean if you listen to his um, presser, he's saying like I enjoyed like 
the discourse between the two. He liked having a different opinion on there, but when you go back and look through like the 300 something games Hartley has coached and then he comes out of the failure that was this past season and says, we need to block more shots. I mean, I think, yeah, I think he took all of that into account. I mean, you can't ignore the fact that your new core has mostly been grown up under this one guy, that he's the guy they, that he's helped develop them. And I think that played a role into deciding it, but ultimately you have to make the decision to move on. And when you look at his entire body of work, which takes a bit of time, he has to be like, yeah, we, we got to part ways now. Yeah, that's what Brian Burke um, mentioned as well on Primetime Sports, that this wasn't a, a, a this year thing. And, and that it's unfair to say, oh, you, uh, you fired the Jack Adams winner a year after he won it. And, you know, two years after he had that amazing season with the team, this was a, a full body of work evaluation. And that's where they concluded that he wasn't the right man for the job. Yeah, people saying, um, oh, it was all roses when he won the Jack Adams and now that they missed the playoffs. Like, no, he didn't even deserve to win the Jack Adams. Like, he didn't. He wasn't that good then. He fluked his way into the playoffs. Uh, it wasn't anything particularly special. He did. He had Derek Anglin regularly playing in the top four when Giordano went down, even though there was concrete evidence that Rafael Diaz or David Slumko would be much better suited. Yeah, Schlumpf, like he flew, yeah. he fell his way up into the playoffs. He did not deserve Jack Adams, and I would have been cool with them canning him after he won it. Quite frankly, so. So you like riots, is what you're saying? <laughs> and there would have been a huge uproar. I mean, I I was a Bob I'm Hartley not fan. From Vancouver. <laughs> I was a Bob Hartley fan at the beginning of the year, actually, and it wasn't until, I don't know, 20 games in and a lot of conversations on Twitter did I kind of change my my focus. Because on the surface, if you're just a casual fan, if you just uh, tune in to the games and kind of watch them, he seems like a good coach. I mean, your team plays an up-tempo game. They're mostly exciting. And all the games that that this team lost or most of them at, at least you could have pinned it on on goaltending or a lack of effort which falls on the coach but as i don't know a casual fan that likes bob hartley i would assume that your answer to that is oh no the players are well chris, chris you just should jump in here the the team let's be honest the team judging you know since the the rebuild began since the post againly years began the flames have played an entertaining style of hockey the problem is it's entertaining for the wrong reasons it's one of those ones where, you know, uh, look, look at the stretches of games they had at the end of 13-14 where they played, like, you know, the, the same kind of counterpunch games that they played, uh, you know, in 14-15. The challenge was they weren't a very good team and they relied on bounces. They relied on, you know, really good opportunistic power play, uh, positioning and power play performance. And it was they played a white-knuckle style because you never knew if they were ever going to hold a lead and you never really... They knew they were going to get a lead, and it made them entertaining, but also made them just absolutely frustrating to watch and to cover and to probably cheer for. Because, you know, oh, the Flames have a two-goal lead. Is this going to hold up? No, because they're the Flames. Oh, the Flames are down three goals. Is this going to hold up? No, because they're the Flames. It, it, it cuts both ways, and you can't you give him credit for having a team that comes back from, you know, down three goals while not giving him the blame for being a team that regularly blew big leads. Yeah, that's... That's fair, I guess. I'm just trying to find a perspective in which you like Bob Hartley because you don't have to look that hard to see that this team was playing a system, which was why Chris Russell was leading the league in block shots, where you let the other team come to you, they shoot at you, you get in the way of the shot, and then you fire a stretch pass and you try and score goals, which works when no one knows that you're doing it, but when they do know you're doing it, that's when you run in 
into some trouble, and that's when you end up drafting sixth overall. I, I frequently brought this up as an example of when I thought that Bob is probably on his way out. Uh, December 29th uh, of this year, at the end of the, the Plains had that great December where they won all kinds of games and finally seemed to momentum, and here comes Anaheim. Oh, God, Anaheim's one of the worst teams in the league. People were just, you know, I was at the rink, and people were actually talking, hey, is this the game where they finally fire Boudreaux after they lose? Bruce Boudreaux's Ducks came in and played a masterpiece of stifling defensive hockey, regularly just putting four guys at the, at the defensive blue line and swatting down stretch passes. The Flames had no answer. The Ducks played boring, come at us, we'll water away hockey for 40 to 45 minutes, scored a really scrappy goal, and they just white knuckled it to the end. And Hartley had absolutely no answer for it. They, they played three periods, and Hartley was just sort of looked on the bench like he had no idea how to counter the four guys in the blue line thing. And, I remember that, yeah. Yeah, it's just a game. It was a, just a wildly boring game to cover, but I don't think there's anybody who had any doubt that the Flames were going to lose that game because, you know, the body language on the bench, the body language of the coach, and even afterwards, everyone just sort of shrugged and went, oh, we need to get more chances. Oh, we guess we can't really run the stretch pass as much. And if, oh, you need to get more chances, it's up to the coach to come up with a better solution. Uh, I think the, the whole, the whole uh, oh, I think it's mean to fire a Hartley thing after last year, like I was saying, I don't think it would have been that mean. Because I think if you have a coach and you know, you know, everyone knows that coaches are people and people have expiry dates in groups, uh, at a certain point, you know, the you know, the reputation that Bob had was that guys are going to tune him out because his raw, raw spiel will wear thin. And if you say, okay, we're going to give Bob three years with the group and then we're going to put him to some, go do something else, it, all that screams to me externally is that it looks like they have a plan they're sticking to it. Extending Bob in the middle of the rebuild, all that said to me was they're not quite sure where they are in their succession and they're not quite sure where they are in their plan. So they're just trying to buy themselves a year or two wiggle them by just, you know, extending him because he's popular. Yeah, uh, well, uh, see, that popularity thing is what I don't understand. Um, all we've heard today is Bob Hartley is not the same person behind closed doors as he is in in front of the media and in front of the fans, and that behind clo- uh, closed doors, a lot of his players didn't like him, and a lot of his players maybe even uh, resented him, and, and that was, uh, Brian Burke li- listed that as a reason that they let him go, that in the exit interviews, they got the sense that there needed to be a change, that the players were just sick of him. So this whole, I don't know, Mike likes to use the 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 phrase wax poetic of the players love to play for Bob Hartley. And Bob Hartley gets the best out of the players because they like him. He's a player's coach. It's BS. It's false. It's completely wrong, actually. What else are they going to say? Like, like they put Monaghan on the radio and it's like, hey, Sean, did you hate Bob Hartley all along? What do you think he's going to say? He's a professional athlete. He's going to give you the most boring answer possible. Well, Sean he's not will. going to confess to emotion like that. Right, but there's uh, there's coaches that people just know you don't like to play for. Ken Hitchcock, D- Daryl Sutter, off the top of my head. You know, so I don't understand why this uh, this Bob Hartley. I don't even know what to call it. This this fallacy around him that yeah that well. No, just this this story that people kept telling themselves that, oh, no, no, Hartley is a great coach to play for. Everyone loves playing for him. When, in fact, he's shoving his foot so far up everyone's ass, they just can't stand him. Because his, his he's got a gap between the fans and himself, and the media bridges that gap, and he charms the media with 
a silly little quotes or whatever. So they paint him in a glorious light. So everything's, oh, Hartley's so funny. And he led the team to the playoffs that one year. He's great. That's fair. Yeah. And it's it's just, it's an illusion. Yeah. All right. I feel like we've been uh, just picking at his, at his bad points here. And I know we're going to get ro- roasted in the comments for it. So let's. Uh, let's end the uh, the Bob Hartley firing segment of the uh, of the podcast. And before we segue to who could replace him, what are both of yours? We'll start with Ari. What are both of your favorite and least favorite moments with Bob Hartley's four year tenure in Calgary? Okay, I mentioned my favorite on a post yesterday. If you're listening to this on Wednesday, uh, the opening game into the 2013-14 season because it was the first year of the rebuild and I was going into it being like, oh, this is going to be chore to watch all year. I don't want to do it. And then they came out and scored three goals in the first period. I remember watching it. I remember seeing my timeline on Twitter. Everyone's freaking out like, who are these flames? They're fun to watch. What is this? I can get on board with this. And that that is like my purest, most happy memory of Bob Hartley. He made the flames really entertaining to watch again. And least favorite? Oh, Lord. Ah. You got to go dig in your big bag of Bob Hartley memories now. <laughs> it's, it's, I'm, going to, I'm going to go with the overall treatment of Michael Backlund. And I know some people are going to say he toughened him up. Like, no. Backlund had shown signs of being a fantastic possession player under every coach he played for. Hartley did not magically make him awesome by giving him tough love. Hartley stunted him. Hartley didn't, like, in 2013-14, he was buried. He was healthy scratched for a game. He was playing beneath Joe Colborne, remember that. And he didn't get back in on a regular position until Monaghan got hurt. Hartley needed to put a center in high position. And it's like, oh, wow, Backlund's amazing. Where did this come from? It came from him getting actual minutes. Then we go to 2014-15, Backlund's hurt most of the year, so we avoid most of this. Then we get to 2015-16, and like three games into the season, Backlund's on the fourth line. And I'm like, really, do, have we not been through this already? How many times do we have to go through this plane's best defensive forward and you giving him shit for it? How many times did we have to go through that? It was just the most aggravating thing to watch. And I can't imagine how it felt to actually be in that position. Like, I've proved myself. I've proved myself. Why are you doing this? So that that pissed me off the most, probably. And Ryan, what about you? Your favorite and least favorite? Oh, goodness. There's so many of those. Uh, for my favorite, I'll go sentimental. And uh, I'll go the, the game six win at home against Vancouver. Because it just, for, for all the, you know, the frustrations that I think everyone who covered this team or cheered for this team had with, the playing style, the deployments, everything basically of Bob Hartley. There was, you know, there was that beautiful period before the, the Anaheim Ducks caught up with them, and you know, the uh, clock struck midnight. That everything seemed to be working, everything clicked, and you know, you had that. You know, I, I think, you know, as much as you know, Matt Station now is just sort of a peripheral player on the team now. I think just just the fact that you know. Matt Station was able to have that cool moment that he scored a big goal in his first playoff series, and you know just the pure, I guess, joy that you know was palpable in the air in the arena, and you know back, you know, in the event level, just you know it seemed like it was a very surreal thing to be able to cover. And, you know, a lot of that because Bob is able to make that part happen. On and uh, I will jump in just so like. I'm not like a raging hate monster here, but Hartley definitely outcoached the Jardins in that series. Yeah. Like, it was like was someone. Sweet. It was like he was 
playing chess and Dejanin is playing checkers. Like, you know, <laughs> I, I, I have no idea what he is doing. Let's be honest here. Michael Ferland is an NHL player right now because Bob Hartley figured out a way to get NHL minutes out of him. Mm-hmm. True, true. And the okay. adrenaline lasted for, for six games for him. I think he, was, he wasn't the same against Anaheim at all. Not, no he, was, he got injured. He did yeah. get injured, that's true. That's and again, true. that was, again, we're going to get into this when, you know, until Bruce Boudreau gets hired by somebody else. But it was the same difference. Boudreau was playing uh, chess and uh, you know, poor Bob was playing checkers in the next <laughs> year. So. Yeah. Uh, and your least favorite moment, real quick, before we... we uh, we jump to who might replace Bob Hartley. Uh, least favorites? I'm probably. I'm just gonna say October in general because uh, I just think everything that went right hit a wall all at once and came crashing down. And it was like watching somebody. You know, he spent basically three years building a house of cards, and everyone went. You know, you can say to yourself, "Oh man, you know, that's a pretty big, that's a pretty cool house. It's getting really tall." And I don't think it's mean to say, but it's made out of cards. It's going to flip over and collapse on itself sooner or later. And in just the course of one injury and a bunch of weird decisions later, the whole thing came toppling down, and he seemed completely, completely bewildered as to how to fix it. Yeah. All right, Ryan, thanks for your time and for everything. And uh, we'll, we'll welcome in Mike Fail now. Mike, we were just uh, reminiscing on our favorite and least favorite moments from the Bob Hartley era. I don't have to ask you if you're happy about the firing, but what what are your favorite and least favorite moments from uh, Hartley's four years here? Uh, wasn't there that uh, the one time when he played Brandon Bolig on the power play for like two minutes? <laughs> <laughs> I can't like There was a game where like Brandon Bolig had like a minute and a half of power play time or something like that. I thought that was a really good time. Of course there was. I mean, I... I don't really care about the man, to be honest. I mean, this is a great day. I don't think we should be dwelling on the past anymore. We should be uh, really excited about what's going to happen here in the future. Which is why we brought you in to talk about the future. You're working on a on a little piece looking at, at potential replacements for Bob Hartley. And even though we've all anointed Bruce Boudreaux as the, uh, as the next candidate, it doesn't really seem that way. Uh, both Burke and Living have reiterated over and over again that the process started today. They don't have anyone in mind. They don't think that that, or they don't have a list yet. So Boudreaux isn't as much of a shoe in as we'd like to make him. But there's plenty of other options, aren't there? Aren't there, Mike? Yeah. Well, I mean, let's let's not beat around the bush here. Like it's really coincidental they pull it off today when uh, Boudreaux gets fired here. You know, a few days ago. But there's quite a bit of names out there, and I mean, there's a lot of names that a lot of people haven't thought about and there's a lot of names that people have thought about obviously like guys like Davis Payne and John Stevens and you know Kevin Deneen's an option in Chicago even though uh, Joel Quinville went on record saying that he expects the entire coaching staff to return for October right um you know Guy Boucher's name's been out there quite a bit and he's actually been interviewing for the Ottawa position if I'm not mistaken um I think his name's been floated around with the Minnesota Wild as well and then you kind of go through the rest of the list, and there's like a there's three in particular. There's three names in particular from the AHL that are worth mentioning, and one is Luke Richardson, who was a former AHL coach in Ottawa's affiliate. Um, he left recently after Pierre Dorian said that he wasn't going to be considered for the uh, Senators' job that is vacant because Dave Cameron got fired. Right. There's Travis Green of the uh, Utica Comets, uh, Vancouver's top affiliate. Uh, he's got quite a bit of attention on him, and he's had quite a bit of attention on him for the last couple of years. 
And then finally, there's a name that was floated a bit today. And when you kind of explore it a bit more, it makes a lot of sense. And there's obviously going to be uh, some pushback on it because it's you know, only his first year uh, you know, coaching at the program. It's Sheldon O'Keefe of uh, the Toronto Marlies. And he's basically Kyle Dubas's right-hand man. But, I mean, you know, that was going back to uh, Sault Ste. Marie with, you know, what they did with the Greyhounds. But right. with that, you know, Babcock is the coach for Toronto. There's no question about it. The likelihood of him getting fired is, you know, non-existent. And he's, a, he's there for the long haul, right? That, that's right. their guy. So he's not going to be an AHL coach forever, but everybody knows that. Like, this guy's going to be, like, the next big thing if it pans out at the pro level. So the opportunity to poach him, if permitted, and, you know, you wanted to go down that route, it's totally there. It's there, but is he really ready, right? Like, you can you can look at John Cooper in, in Tampa and say, hey, he had only, what, two years of, of pro experience before uh, before making the jump. But, I mean, Sheldon keeps been an AHL coach for how much? Months, not not years, right? Yeah, and that's definitely a reasonable thing to say. But when you really think about it, does this team need, like, and I, I mean, I thought about it quite a bit today when I was writing, working on the piece, and it's still not done, but do you really need, like, a Guy Boucher with this team or a Kevin Deneen? Or can you maybe go with somebody a little bit younger who who's going to grow and has the right skill set, like, the necessary attributes of being a successful coach in the NHL this day, this day and age and utilize him that right way. Like in a similar vein of maybe like a John Cooper, but like you're saying, like he's only had this one season of success and you know, you want to see what he does over a couple more, but I don't know the, the future, like the, the opportunities with whatever coach they choose outside of, you know, a lot of guys that they should be avoiding. I mean, it's not going to be a detriment probably with anybody they choose. And that kind of segues to, or uh, you're talking about the fit and how that's important. That kind of segues to what I wanted to ask you, Ari, is we talk about Bruce Boudreaux because of the success uh, that he's had and because he's run the best power play and penalty kill in, in the league in Anaheim and because he has all of these these positives around him, but is he the right fit for this team or does he come in and maybe not, I don't know, play to to this team's strengths, which sounds weird, but everything that, that uh, – that Brian Burke and, and Brad Trey Living were talking about uh, today about size and about, I don't know, more truculence doesn't seem to line up with what Boudreaux brings. Although we had all of this discussion back when Boudreaux was coaching the Ducks about how, oh, the Ducks are so huge, we have to get bigger to compete with the Ducks. And it was just Boudreaux outmatching Hartley at every turn. Um, I mean, I think you can give Boudreaux whatever kind of roster, and as long as there are quality players on it, which the Flames do have, he should be able to have success out of them. He's a guy who, look at how he turned it around into Steven Anaheim this year. It was a horrible team, off to one of the worst starts. And this was back when we were thinking, like, oh, the Flames could still maybe make the playoffs because their division is so terrible. Right. They just have to get it kicked in. They didn't. Anaheim did. So he can adapt. Right, but but the Ducks roster is far superior to the Flames, isn't it? At least in goal, yeah, but, it's just miles ahead. But this one is still growing, and it has the personnel in place to keep growing. And if you get a new coach, like we look at, like um, Monaghan has had some defensive inefficiencies to his game. Maybe Boudreaux gets them into him. Like people complain, I don't want to watch Boudreaux. I don't want to watch trap style hockey. I to just want to watch a winning hockey team. And Boudreaux has, like, won the division every year he's coached lately. Yeah. 
I think going off that as well, I, it doesn't like going off what I was saying with you know like the roster and what's there. A good coach is going to maximize the best of you know the strongest attributes of what he's given, and he's going to find a way to either shelter or diminish you know the negative side effects of the negatives on that roster. That's what makes good coaches in this range. It's not you know you know a master tactician in every regard. They're they're well rounded, but the common attribute you see in a lot of great coaches, for example, like Mike Babcock with the Maple Leafs this year, is he did the best with what he could. And what you got was a Toronto team that, you know, wasn't all there all the time, but they were capable at, you know, competing most nights. And they even made the Flames look pretty embarrassing at times. And like, no disregard to, like, the guys in the Toronto roster, but that roster was hot piss. Like, you can and he was, um, he was, they were a positive possession team under Babcock. They jumped yeah. up, like, 5%, of course. See, but yeah, the question I the, uh, the question I have though is everyone uh, regarded Todd McClellan in a, a similar ilk as as uh, as Mike Babcock, and then Edmonton goes and is the exact same team. Is that is that just because Edmonton is a black hole, a Bermuda Triangle of hockey, or is is that not true for all teams that a good coach will make any team better, even if it's it's like Babcock did, underlying and in work ethic and in habits? I think with Edmonton, for example, and if you look relative to what McClellan had in San Jose, it's kind of hard to not acknowledge the, like, the, the value of like a, a Joe Thornton or a Joe Pavelski and like, those types of players where they had, you know he had elite-level possession drivers and play drivers and that's not to take anything away from Taylor Hall who is an elite play driver and you know they've got the right pieces in like a Connor McDavid and a Jordan Eberle and, but um, along the way though like you look at the Oilers blue line for example and there's not much for the you know McClellan to work with there their depth isn't really as strong as it could be you know there were some usage decisions and goaltending problems and stuff like that like if you really objectively look at Edmonton this season there's a lot of reasonable concerns with the roster composition that did play a factor, but I mean, there was other excruciating factors as well there. Right. But I mean, getting back to the main point, like McClellan is still an elite level. I mean, a, a grand level coach, like he was highly sought after. He's the kind of guy that has a reputation for winning his ball, at least in the regular season. And, you know, there's a lot of narratives in a similar ilk around, you know, Reese Boudreau and, you know, McClellan that are shared like that they came out of the playoffs, but I don't know. I think it's fine. The one question I'm not, I'd like to uh, to end with that concerns uh, Bruce Boudreau, and I'm not sure if if either of you really know how to answer this fully, but a lot of of stuff on the radio this um, th- this morning and leading into the afternoon when the Boudreau talk was or seemed to be hottest was he didn't really have a huge influence on the Ducks uh, special teams, which were stellar. That went to Trent Yanni, and that went to. Paul McLean. So if you get Bruce Boudreaux and you don't get the two assistants because they're still there, are you really getting the special teams? Are you really getting everything that Anaheim had? Or is Bruce Boudreaux just kind of a unifier because the, the players like him, but all the systems and all that was the assistant coaches in Anaheim? Do you want to go first, Ari? I mean, I'm trying to think of an answer. and I Because I don't have one. Don't yeah. Like, is it... Is it guaranteed that his assistant is sticking at him? If they bring in a new coach, wouldn't he want to bring his own guys in? I'm not sure. I think Paul McClain was kind of forced on him, if I remember correctly. That wasn't really his choice. 
And and uh, Marty Jelen is still here. You know, Jordan Sigalet's still here. Um, uh, Jamie Pringle is still here. And Bradshaw Living said that he'd like to keep them because he likes them. So it's a bit of a weird situation. The Flames bring in their new coach. Shouldn't their new coach get to dictate who his assistants are? Otherwise, you're having a potentially unhappy situation, and why would you do that to yourself? Fair, but but these two assistants, I mean, I don't I don't really think they're going. I mean, uh, Trent Yanni was being talked about as as the guy who was going to replace Boudreaux midseason, so maybe he's a candidate now. I mean, I'm just wondering um, exactly how much of the power play was Paul McLean and how much of the penalty kill was Trent Yanni, and are we overvaluing Bruce Boudreau? Because we really haven't attacked that angle to it, right? It's all been, oh my God, he took the Capitals from you know a decent team to scoring, I don't know, 400 goals a season, and then he, he went to Anaheim, and they won the division every year. But how much of it was really him? Well, I mean, he, who was who Boudreau's assistants in Washington? Was it the same guys? Um, don't, was, don't think so. I've got so. it up here right now. Uh, it depended on year to year, like... If we go back to his first full season with Washington, um, it looked like it was Jay Leach and Dean uh, Everson. And then from there, yeah, it seemed to go that way. Like he had the same, uh, he changed it up to Blaine Forsyth and Bob Woods uh, later on in Washington. Um, so he kind of rolled similar assistant coaches, and um, some of those guys ended up sticking around. Yeah, no, but, if I remember, if I remember correctly, Trent Yanni came from. The Ducks AHL affiliate. He had something to do down there, and Paul McLean was in in Detroit for the longest time until until he got the job in Ottawa, and then from Ottawa he went to to Anaheim. So <clears throat> yeah, I don't I don't know I don't I know mean, he if he rolled with assistants and he still had like a great deal of success year to year. That's that a good point. Indicates something like he he's doing something right him himself. That's a good point. And the other thing is that uh, Bruce Boudreaux has always been known as an offensive coach, although apparently he did uh, wonders with the Ducks defense. But in Washington, he was part, you know, um, he coached those teams with, with Alex Semin scoring 40 and o- Ovi scoring 60 and, and Mike Green scoring 30. So he's known as an offensive coach. He's good with offense. And when you've got, you know, Bennett, Goodrow, Monahan, uh, sixth overall pick, who will probably be a forward, I mean, that's a good guy to have in this situation, I think. And I don't think you can... Oh, sorry. I was going to say... Go ahead. ahead. Okay. Polite Canadians. On the back end, Giordano, Brody, Hamilton, like the three of them combined can score 150-plus points next year. Yeah. So that fits in. Like, oh, we need to have uh, have a green light for the Flames defense. Like, okay, Boudreaux will do that. He had Mike Green. Yeah. And Hampus Lindholm and Sammy Votnin. So he's... He's familiar with, with that. And Mike, uh, whatever your point was going to be, let's let's make that the final one. So it better be so, good. If we're going to be as objective as possible in saying, okay, this is Bruce Brugge, this is his track record, this is what he's capable of, this is like you know where his deficiencies are. I mean, it's been on record and it's been quite prominent here ever since he had turfed and you know leading up to like the the game seven and where the Ducks lost that he was a player's guy. And it's interesting when you start seeing these conflicting reports of saying, okay, you know, players maybe have felt alienated by him or wanted him to get fired. So I find that if we're trying to be as objective as possible about him, we could say that he's likely an offensively-minded coach or who has an emphasis on it uh, in driving play and maybe being a player's coach where, you know, the technical side maybe isn't his strongest suit, but he's able to get 
you know, the, the quote-unquote best out of every player um, uh, night in and night out. And that's what you saw a lot in Washington, and that's what you saw quite a bit in Anaheim up until the season. Um, when we look at the special team side of things, like there's no doubt about it that, you know, Paul McLean had a huge factor in driving that. Um, but like you were saying, there, there was quite a bit of an improvement on the Ducks' blue line, um, predominantly in their youth. And you already met, you named them, right? You know, Hampus Lindholm, Sonny Vatnin. You know, there's still Cam Fowler there. Oh, yeah. uh, there's Josh Manson, who was a huge, you know, part of the Ducks season that not a lot of people talked about. And his injury actually caused quite a bit of a problem in the playoffs for them. Uh, like, you go down the roster and you can see who drew a stamp on quite a bit of those players. And like I already was saying, you, you take all this youth and the three big pieces in the blue line and you say, okay, well, like, we're handing him a silver platter of talent if he wants it and if the opportunity is there for him. Um, it's just a matter of giving him the right pieces around him and say, okay, you've got this guy who can get the most of these players. His weakness is maybe a little bit, a few elements on the special teams of the technical side, but if you can insulate him with the right assistant coaches, for example, or, you know, the right inputs be, uh, you know, the role that Chris Snow has in the organization or, you know, they go out and get somebody else, like, the world is your oyster at that point. Yeah. But even then, you know, it's still a big what if he, if he decides to come to Calgary, if the opportunity's there, or if he wants to go somewhere else that's a bit closer to winning. Right. Well, one thing's for sure, we won't be bored and short of content for the next couple months, I guess, uh, leading up to the draft and, and the Flames trying to find a new coach. Brian Burke said that there's no rush at all on this process. Uh, Brad Living's at the World Championships and, and uh, Burke also mentioned that he'd be perfectly comfortable if the team went into the draft without a coach. So I think we'll be debating this point for quite a little while. We'll see if, if Bruce Boudreau gets snapped up by any other team before the Flames make their decision. But uh, regardless, I, I trust Brad Living. I think he's made mostly good decisions, and um, he seems to be a very thorough man, so whoever uh, comes in as coach won't be hastily chosen. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Ari. That's a wrap. Shut up!